0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Just a a couple little announcements uh, before we get started. One, uh, Gil's asked me to say this, and he's right to do that. Uh, You know, we've been involved in a visioning process here at the Advent uh, for uh, uh, several months now, uh, but now we're really kind of taking it to the next level, and we're going to be publishing uh, three little booklets that are going to be around and available in the church uh, next week. Uh, The first uh, booklet will be uh, a layout of the big picture of our identity, purpose, and the six tenets that we were looking at uh, in the process, so uh, worship, communication, shepherding, outreach... Uh, ministry development and discipleship, so that's a very good. If you have questions or you want to see what it's all about, that's a good one to go to. Uh, The second will be a large trifold which will include the details of the ideas generated by the process, so the ideas that came out of, for instance, communications or shepherding or whatever group it is. Uh, And then finally, and more importantly, the last booklet will be a booklet of prayers and devotions. And starting on Sunday, the 24th of September, uh, we're going to pray together as a church and everyone will be invited to use this booklet as a guide. And uh, we'll pray through each of the six tenets and uh, taking a week with each one of them. And for six weeks, there'll be a daily verse with a short devotion and a prayer uh, for each day. So great chance for the uh, Advent to come together and uh, pray together. And so those will be available. And I hope that you can do that. And then Uh, For the dean's class on the 17th, 24th, and October the 1st, uh, we'll actually be taking a break from the articles uh, for the next three weeks. I'll do the intro class, and then I'll launch into it on the 8th. Um, uh, We'll be talking about two tenets uh, each week. So we'll be talking about, uh, in the first week, worship and communication, then shepherding and outreach, and then ministry development and discipleship. So uh, that'll give you a chance to interact, and at that point you will have... um, uh, or at least on the 24th, you'll have the... Um, no, you should have all the booklets in your hand uh, at that point when we start the class on the 17th. Also, uh, if you're just awe-inspired uh, by this series on the articles, uh, you may be interested to know that the Advent will be taking a trip to England and Scotland, uh, just men in golf clubs. Just kidding, that's a lie. Um, from my lips to you know whose ears. Um, and that is going to be uh, July the 14th through July the 22nd, July the 14th, so you arrive in England uh, in London July the 14th, and then you'll fly out of Edinburgh on the 22nd, and uh, I am being serious about this, if uh, you're looking for a little game, a little match in Scotland on the front end or the back end, I'm your man, Uh, so... um, So, in all honesty, we'll probably play St. Andrews and Muirfield. So, if you're interested in that, uh, and uh, we'll we'll sort that out. Uh, But it's a it'll be a great trip. Uh, Gil and I will be leading it, but we've also lined up uh, some pretty heavy hitters from Oxford and Cambridge to actually take us take us to the various Reformation sites and give us the insider's tour. And I haven't confirmed it yet, but he says he thinks he can do it. Uh, We've lined up a pretty uh, pretty big name to take us through Edinburgh to do the Scottish, Edinburgh and St. Andrews uh, to do uh, the Scottish uh, sites. So um, it'll, it'll be a great, uh, great trip, and you'll be finding out about that uh, in the very near future. And um, there are limited spots, and so please, if you're interested, uh, let uh, Gil or I know and include your uh, USGA Handicap Index. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Let's pray. <laughs> Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for the world in which you've created. And Lord, we pray that we would not uh, lose uh, our sense of what has gone on before us, especially who has gone on before us, for we stand on their shoulders. And Lord, that you would uh, help us better understand the movement of your Holy Spirit. in what seems like a very long time ago, but Lord, is uh, evident, needs to be spoken uh, into today's world as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Our Anglican Articles, what are they and why do they matter? Uh, this is an important class, and someone rightfully said, well, this should be the Inquirer's class because this isn't what this is all about. And The answer to that is yes, uh, this is what it's all about. The whole idea of the Articles is if someone says, well, what do you believe as an Anglican or even an Episcopalian, you ought to be able to say, well, here are the 39 Articles. This is what we believe. Now the problem with that is how many people actually answer the question with that answer? Almost nobody. Almost nobody. In fact, uh, every time the new prayer book a new prayer book comes out, they shrink the font down more and more and more until it's going to end up being like Willy Wonka and the half magnifying glass at the end, and you just kind of et cetera your way through it. But the uh, the articles are uh, of significant importance, and what I hope that we see is that this is not just some historical document but actually is really pertinent uh, for the world in which we live today. So, for instance, uh, I saw recently that the Pew Research Forum had uh, brought out some statistics from Protestants, and it turns out that a majority of Protestants are not Protestant. That actually we're now approaching a time when a majority of Protestants would agree with the Roman Catholic position during the time of the Reformation than the Protestant position. And so, when somebody asks me, uh, why, why is the Advent so big on the Reformation, or why do things like the Articles matter, uh, I'd say, because it speaks today, right? These are the issues today. Uh, the authority uh, of the Scripture, uh, is Christ's death sufficient enough uh, to get us into heaven? Uh, nearly half of Protestants interviewed said that, uh, that no, that it was uh, faith plus good works, uh, that would get you into heaven. And so uh, these, are the, these are the very issues that were going on at the time of uh, the Reformation. If you want a real quick survey and you think I don't want to do this for all these weeks that Andrew's doing them, although I can promise it'll be fun and lively. Uh, Gerald Bray did the 39 articles in an hour uh, and he really breezes through them, but you can find that on our website And he makes some really good points. And one thing is that if you're a church, you have three pillars that you need to hold it all together. One, you need doctrine. Two, you need discipline. And three, you need devotion. And so you need to have a common doctrine. And of course, for the Christian church, it would be that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the New Testament is about. Uh, And that's what the Old Testament is about, quite frankly, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so out of that common doctrine, Uh, that we share about who jesus christ is and what he's done another reason why you know somebody said why does the advent always talk about the sufficiency of the scriptures and why does the advent talk so much about what jesus has done for us Uh, because the world is really confused not just the world protestants christians are confused about who jesus is and what he's done and the nature of his word that gives testimony to who he is and what he's done and so you have that doctrine but so what uh, what you need is you need something to hang that doctrine on. You need a discipline, something that holds us all together. And by that, I don't mean um, I don't mean uh, a bureaucratic structure. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, a shared understanding uh, that we are in it together, and what are the parameters of that understanding? And then finally, devotion. Uh, how does our belief, our doctrine, shape? Uh, what we do corporately on Sunday mornings and so uh, I understand what people mean when they say well Anglicans have liturgy but Baptists really don't well that's not true Uh, they have liturgy it's just different from ours I mean you go to enough Baptist churches and you begin to see that there actually is a pretty common way of 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 doing uh, church Uh, or uh, if you've been to uh, a big uh, mega church that is Pentecostal in orientation uh, even though it might seem really free form, uh, it's always the standard four songs, you're exhausted. So when people fall out in Pentecostal churches, it's not the Holy Spirit. They're just tired of singing with their arms up. And, um, and, uh, and then you have a sermon, and then you might have a little bit of prayer, and then you sing, and then you're out. Right? It's a pretty predictable pattern. And so our liturgy is just different. Uh, but uh, your liturgy ought to reflect... Uh, and, and actually, uh, what we're going to find is that your liturgy uh, ought to reflect what you believe, because if it doesn't, that liturgy will begin to affect what you believe. And so it's amazing to me the number of uh, folks that, that would say talk about the importance of preaching, uh, and, uh, and yet you know, the songs last almost an hour in the service, and the sermon's 20 minutes. Right? So if you're looking at their liturgy, what would be the important thing? The singing, right? The singing would be the important thing, even though they would deny that. So doctrine, discipline, and devotion, and the articles actually flesh all those out for us. Uh, they, they, if you want to break it down into three sections, uh, the first part, and these are not equal sections, but the first part of the article starts off by talking about what Christian, basic Christian belief is. What do we as, as Christians believe? whether you're Protestant, Roman Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, it doesn't matter that there's gonna be pretty strong agreement around the first eight articles uh, because they articulate what any Christian ought to believe. And then the second part uh, will articulate what most Protestants in continental Europe uh, and the UK uh, would have believed. And then finally, things that are particular to Anglicanism Uh, but also particular to the time and place in which uh, they were drafted. And so why the Articles and why now? Uh, The Articles of the Church of England were first drafted in 1553. That was the tail end of Edward VI's reign. uh, And uh, Cranmer, uh, not too long after this, would be burned at the stake by Mary. Uh, But they were uh, drafted in 1553, uh, revised in 1564, and uh, also there was a little revision again in the, 15, uh, in the 1570s and finally enshrined into law in 1571. And since then, uh, all individuals in the Church of England and in most Anglican provinces have to sign on and assent to the articles before they can be ordained. So if they said, I agree with all the odd number articles, but not the evens, they don't get ordained. And that's the case for a... a Uh, a majority uh, of the Anglican uh, communion, not so in the United States. Even so, uh, the articles are included in the back of every American edition of the Book of Common Prayer and the preamble of our Constitution commits the denomination to, quote, upholding and propagating the historic faith and order as set forth in the Book of Common Prayer, which would include uh, the 39 articles. So at least on paper, we're saying, we believe this, Uh, we believe, Uh, the articles. And even though the articles play a central role in who we are as Anglicans, uh, they've been largely lost. Uh, And I think that that's a result of time, but also of circumstance. Indeed, if the articles, uh, you know, very rarely uh, will I run into uh, someone who will want to argue with me over the content of the articles. Uh, So they're not actually in dispute, uh, they're just ignored. Uh, they're, they're just not even uh, bothered with. Uh, I've even had one bishop in the church say to me, "You know, the Advent. You know, you talk about the Reformation and the and the articles and and the ordinal. You know, like I've never read the articles, and I don't even know what the ordinal is. And of course, the ordinal was the service that was used to consecrate this person as a bishop. And so um, uh, and so they're just not uh, they're they're just ignored. Uh, they're just completely. Uh, ignored and so the need but for the longest time the articles and the teaching of the art the teaching on the articles was largely unnecessary because of what the prayer book you really didn't have to do much teaching on the articles because of the prayer book now uh, it used to be it's no longer the case but some guys still do it and John Stott would do this on the anniversary every year of his ordination before you were instituted as the rector, you had to get up and read the 39 articles to your congregation. I mean, you could make a killing selling hot dogs uh, uh, on that day. And, uh, and John Stott would actually do it. He'd say, I'm going to be at the church at 6.30, I'm going to read half of the articles this day, and then next Sunday I'll start at 6.30, and I'll read the other half uh, that Sunday. Because that's what he had to do when he was instituted as the rector of All Souls Church in London. <clears throat> and the prayer book, uh, which uh, has been in effect, and for most of the communion, the 1662 is the official prayer book, um, affirmed uh, what the articles taught. The, the liturgy that is provided for in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer are a manifestation, a liturgical manifestation of the doctrine espoused in the 39 articles. And so you could bring up the articles and people would nod their heads, yes, But over time, people sort of relied on the prayer book uh, to convey uh, teaching on uh, the articles. Uh, But as the prayer book began to change, especially in uh, provinces like the United States, it was no longer the case. So the American prayer book, for example, even though the articles are in the back of the prayer book, we have liturgies and theology that stand in opposition to the articles. I mean, this is textbook Episcopal Church. And this is what we do. We kind of like the idea that Well, yes, we say this, but we also say this, but where does it all end up, and what exactly does it mean, and what actually holds the authority? And let me just say something about our language, because we talk a lot in Anglicanism about the prayer book, and I know that there are some people that are anxious that we're getting away from the prayer book, but I want to challenge us this morning that we don't mistake unity and uniformity. We don't mistake unity for uniformity. Uh, When there's nothing to bind us together, we look for forms and manners. And this is no unity at all. And so right now, there is in the church, among some, an attempt to doggedly enforce uh, the 1979 prayer book uh, to the letter of the law. And a lot of that is built around because there's so much dysfunction in our denomination that even though there's widespread disagreement and we're tanking numerically... Uh, at least we can all look like we're the same through our Sunday gatherings. Uh, but of course, that's just a shell. And not only that, if they decided actually we're going to enforce the 1979 prayer book to the nth degree, every church in America is in trouble. Uh, because every church in America has somehow modified it one way or the other, whether they're not following the rubrics to the, to the letter, uh, or whether they're adding extra things to it, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, but it would also mean uh, if we had if someone came in and told us no you have to um, you have to follow the seventy nine prayer book uh, to the absolute letter of the law uh, that would be the end of the advent that would be the end of the advent so even before we made the revisions for our communion service a couple years ago uh, the advent would have had to have changed uh, before then and so when we talk about the prayer book I want us to understand that the pr- departure. From, uh, because a lot of people think, well, right one is the old way of doing things. Uh, that's not true. Uh, the 1979 prayer book, obviously a departure from the prayer book tradition, but actually it was in 1928 where we really made our departure. This was the first American prayer book to introduce prayers for the dead and also the reservation of leftover bread and wine uh, from the communion table. You would take it and you'd put it in a special little box and put a lamp over it. And, uh, and that, of course, gave way to... Um, uh services that you can find in Episcopal churches of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Of course, both of those practices are in violation of the 39 Articles. Now we might say at this point, but Andrew, we don't do those types of things. Uh, but I would say that's not the point. Uh, what it means is that either we ignore the bits of the prayer book, which is what most Episcopalians do, or we try to explain away its plain meaning. And so Right now, I think that the big question, in light of the articles in this class, is not only what we believe, but actually, what does it mean to be Anglican? Uh, I think that if you ask most Episcopalians or Anglicans throughout the world, uh, you'd get pretty wide and varied answers. And I think that that's one of the biggest problems, and one of the things I'm trying to challenge our denomination to do, is to actually grapple with that question. Okay, if we're in disagreement, even over what it means to be Anglicans, what does it look like for us to walk together? Where are those points of, of commonality? Now, one official in the Episcopal Church told me that the canons and money hold us together. And I said, that, that's not a good stewardship slogan. <laughs> People have a really hard time buying into that, that way of thinking. But I'm afraid in many ways he, he might be right. Uh, he might be right Uh, uh, recently the Archbishop of uh, the Anglican Church in Uganda even asked the question he said of the Anglican communion I've asked myself what do we have in common we no longer have a common book of common prayer we do not all share the same common heritage tracing back to the Church of England and at times I wonder whether we really share a common faith if we're not walking in the same direction then how can we walk together for the most part, all that remains in common are the robes and vestments worn during worship services. And so Anglicanism, and I think this is largely true, is identified by an aesthetic consideration by what you see. So you can go to a church and you can say, that's an Anglican church, by what you see going on. Uh, maybe some of the familiar language, but if you're from the Advent, uh, I would encourage you, visit other Anglican churches around. I mean, the Advent is a different uh, kind of place. Uh, you know, the, the traditional services are uh, largely unused. Uh, if they are, they tend to be at 7 in the morning, and, uh, and then uh, you, right to has kind of become ubiquitous. And, and I'm not arguing for uh, Elizabethan English, but what I am saying is that if we want to understand who we are as Anglicans, and what we believe as Anglicans, uh, I think that the Articles are the starting place uh, because that has for centuries been uh, the common-held belief and doctrine uh, of the church. And the moment that we've gotten away from that is when things started uh, to fall apart. And so appeals uh, to things like, well, as long as we... And someone has said this to me recently, uh, even here uh, at uh, the Advent... Uh, you know, isn't it wonderful that uh, we can all believe totally different things and still come to the table together? The table's big enough for all of us. My response would be, well, the table might be big enough, but I'm not sure the Bible is. And what I meant by that was not to exclude people from the table, but actually to say, uh, you know, there are some things that we need to have conversations about, especially core tenet beliefs of what it means to be a Christian uh, that are the basis of our unity, right so and Anglicans are notorious uh, for getting bogged into cuff link issues Uh, so we uh, tend to argue about all kinds of stuff the famous quote that I've told you that Fitz Allison his advice that he gave me uh, when uh, I was being ordained I thought 50 years of ordained wisdom would come pouring out of him uh, but instead his advice to me when I was ordained was Andrew you can preach heresy from the pulpit in the Episcopal Church and no one will say a thing But you start moving the furniture around and they'll tear your rear end up. And that uh, is 100% true. Uh, So Fitz told the story one time that he had uh, pronounced the final blessing uh, at uh, chapel service at Virginia Seminary. And afterwards, one of the other professors was very angry with him and came up to him. And Fitz thought, and Fitz was also the preacher. And Fitz expected him to come up and argue with him about his sermon. But you know what the guy was upset about? that Fitz didn't touch the communion table when he, when he made the final blessing, like he was the missing link of, bah! you know, just kind of uh, to transfer some sort of power to it. And Fitz was sort of, you know, and, and I've experienced that too, where people, uh, and I don't want to belittle it, uh, but it's amazing to me that, you know, things that I'll do, and, uh, and I'll think, I'm going to take it in the neck on this one, and no one says a thing. And then something small happens, and it's all she wrote. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's as if I pushed somebody's grandmother down the steps. Um, so we do tend to get stuck on those things, but some of those things actually are very important. Uh, North American Anglicanism, since the beginning of the 20th century, has largely defined itself by our liturgy, uh, by what you see. Uh, when in fact, uh, you might find this very hard to believe, until the 20th century, the communion service that we have in our prayer book, and in all previous prayer books, including this one, the 1662, almost no church ever did the communion service in this prayer book. Almost no one. What they would do is they'd do morning prayer, and then once a quarter, sometimes twice a year, they would add communion onto the backside of it. That was universally practiced. And so, but the irony is, of course, the service that most Episcopalians and Anglicans are familiar with is the service that people before the 20th century would have been wholly unfamiliar with. In fact, uh, what would happen, and here's something that that rocks our boat, uh, the preacher, whoever was leading the service, would leave after the morning prayer and hurriedly change out of their black gown... That they would wear, their black academic gown, and they would just, with a shirt and tie, throw their white surplice, the thing that we wear, over top in order to go out and do communion. And so that was sort of, so you saw that four times a year, twice a year. Uh, but in the 20th century, we had a, a liturgical revival in the church, and since then, that's kind of how we've defined our liturgy. And there's a little Latin phrase that makes its way around Anglicanism, and that is, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. And that is, literally, the law of worship is the law of belief. Or more intelligibly, how you worship forms what you believe. How you worship forms what you believe. And so, if you have a confession of sin uh, that is less penitent, what does that make the people who say it? Less penitent. Uh, if Jesus' death on the cross is downplayed, what happens? doesn't seem as important. Uh, and so, really, the opposite is what's supposed to be true. What we believe ought to inform how we worship, and in turn, how we worship ought to inform what we believe. Uh, but because Anglicanism has become so uh, freighted with liturgical considerations uh, that uh, it's sort of the end-all, be-all. Uh, of Anglicanism and so that's why I think that Anglicans need to be very uh, aware of what we do what we say and what we do uh, in our Sunday gatherings actually is pretty significant it's not it's not arbitrary uh, because it begins to form uh, certain kinds of of belief and uh, and so and most people who come into Episcopal churches pick up on that pretty quickly So there's the story of um, my former—I'm name names—Jeff Miller, my former rector of the church I served in Buford, preached 30-minute sermons uh, plus right one Holy Communion every Sunday. I mean, it was it was a long service, and um, and somebody was visiting with them, and they were intrigued and was sitting next to Kristen, Jeff's wife, they were intrigued by all the things that were going on in the service. And so they, you know, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And why do you do this? And why do you do that? And Kristen was explaining, and Jeff had a habit, he would take his watch off when he climbed in the pulpit and, uh, and would always go like that and put it down. And the person asked Kristen, uh, what does that mean? And she said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I mean, we, uh, and it's very funny to me that certain traditions... Uh, that we have, I will ask people, "Hey, why do you do that?" and uh, and I'll get different answers from different people. So, for instance, something like um, candles on the table. Why do we have candles on the communion table? Right, there are two candles, so uh, I've asked uh, I've asked a group of people, and they say, "Well, they represent the two natures of Christ." Someone else said they represent the Old and New Testament. Someone said they represent. Um, the law and the gospel sucking up to me. And, uh, and I said, no, actually, that's not why we have candles on the table. The historical reason is for what? Light. So you can see. And so I have told him, I said, you know, I think it's enough and it's all right to say, I think they look pretty. But I think that's actually a really good reason. I think that they're aesthetically enhancing and they look really nice. And, and that's uh, why we should have them. Uh, but so often we look at these little traditions and we try to theologize them when actually there's no theological meaning to them whatsoever. They're a practical consideration. Uh, I told the story before. We had a rector in Beaufort back in the 1970s who uh, after, uh, when he would go down to the communion rail to serve communion, he would ding his wedding ring on the brass railing on the way down and uh, he had a curate who was newly ordained, and the first time he celebrated communion, he dinged it too. And, uh, and John Hardy asked him, he said, why did you do that? And he said, well, I thought that was the tradition here at St. Helena's, and I thought that was like the indicator to the ushers that it was time to come forward. And John Hardy said, no, I wear special orthopedic shoes, and I have to discharge the static. Uh, and so if I don't, I'm going to shock the first person there. Uh, but that's how things start, right? Uh, that's, that's how things start. Uh, and uh, and we're, we are no different. And so uh, if... And the, the, the drafters of the 1979 prayer book, they've written extensively about this, said that they definitely had an agenda. Uh, they had an agenda, and that was to turn the prayer book away from anything that was remotely Cranmarian, meaning anything that had anything to do with the Reformation and the 39 Articles. And that's why you've got the tension there between the Articles and actually the liturgy provided in uh, the 1979 book. So, where did these Articles come from and again, why are they so important? Uh, At the time of the Reformation, it was important for churches, uh, normally national churches or geographic churches, uh, to define themselves uh, over and against the other prevailing religious notions of the day. And so it would be wrong, historically, to say that the 39 Articles are over and against the Roman Catholic Church exclusively. They're not. They are in part, and they get a lot of airtime, but it's also against the more fanatic Anabaptists, uh, who at the time were starting these uh, religious sects. Uh, The peasant wars that broke out in Lutheran Germany were a result of those sects that thought that they had a divine mandate and they should, by the sword, uh, conquer areas for Jesus. And so uh, the articles were were saying, that's not us. That's not us either. But there were a series of articles released uh, over time. At one point in time, the Church of England under Henry VIII had 10 articles. Then they had a bishop's book. Then they had six articles. Uh, At one point in time, in 1538, they had 13 articles, but those weren't ratified by parliament. And uh, so in 1552, 1553, Cranmer and Ridley uh, were the primary drafters of what were the 42 articles. They took three out uh, because they, uh, those actually were Anabaptist articles that they removed because they felt like the threat was gone in England. Uh, but in 1553, they had the 42 articles. And in 1552, Cranmer actually wrote to Calvin and leaders in Lutheran Germany Melanchthon at this point, Luther's successor in Wittenberg, and said, we need to have a general council of the church. The Protestant groups need to all come together and find common ground on what we believe uh, as Christians. Uh, And of course, Cranmer wanted that all to happen in England, and he was right because Edward VI was, it was safer in England. Uh, Trying to get to uh, Germany uh, or Switzerland, uh, from England, uh, you had to go through a lot of tough places, uh, but obviously Cranmer had no problem with Calvin and Melanchthon going through tough places uh, on the way uh, to to England. Uh, the forty-two articles, which became the thirty-nine articles, uh, relied heavily on continental confessions, uh, especially the Augsburg Confession. There are direct quotes. Uh, out of it. You can actually take the Augsburg Confession and line it up next to the articles and see striking similarities. Uh, although, it didn't go the way of Lutherans when it came to the sacraments. Uh, it sided with the Swiss uh, on the sacraments, uh, Calvin and even Zwingli in some instances when it came to the, sac- when it came to the sacraments. And so, the articles like the Augsburg Confession or the Westminster Confession or any sort of thing like that, stake out a theological understanding in, regarding, in regards to the burning issues of the day. So in that sense, they, the articles are a 16th century document. They are. And for those of you that have read the articles, what are they primarily about? One big thing and one subset thing that takes a lot of time. They're basically about soteriology. How do you get saved? How do you get right with God? And the subset that dominates things are sacraments, especially Holy Communion. What does it mean? What's happening during Holy Communion? Now, why were those two things? Why do those two things dominate the uh, the articles? Because that's what was happening in England, right? That's what the fight was about. And you can look back in time and you can actually tell what everybody was fighting about by looking at church confessions. So if you look at the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic's response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation, you actually find out what Protestants believe. Because there are a lot of, and let this person be anathema, if they believe. And read the if they believe, fill in the blank part, and that's what Protestants believe. So actually the Council of Trent you could argue is a Protestant document, uh, not a Roman Catholic one. But it reflects that. And this is the nature of creeds and confessions. Now, I'm not putting the 39 articles uh, on the same level uh, as the creeds. But at the same time, uh, I want us to understand that that's because of a historic impossibility that has been brought about. So when the Nicene Creed uh, and the Apostles' Creed uh, were written by reading those. What was the burning issue in the Church of the day? The nature of Jesus, who Jesus is. You know, is he is he eternally begotten from the Father? Is he God of God? Very God of very God, begotten, not made. Is he? And so the Church, the first time, well, not the first time, but uh, came together as the universal church, to decide that. Confessions and the articles, which it is a confession, uh, were restricted to geography. Right? This is just the Church of England talking about these things. And that's why Cramer was pleading for some kind of general counsel for the whole church to come together and try to plead their way. In fact, um, before Trent, uh, Luther... There was another church council that was dealing with Reformation stuff, and Luther wanted to address that church council to try to find, to actually make it a church council, to try to find a way forward for the church. Uh, But they made it very clear that they didn't want Luther there. And so, one of the things that we are dealing with in our world today is the nature of orthodoxy. What defines orthodoxy? Now, I would say that to be an Anglican means that, yeah, you do need to subscribe to the 39 articles. Now, as a layperson, you might say, well, I don't really agree with that. And that's all well and good. But I can promise you, if you couldn't sign on, I would never put you forward for ordination. I just wouldn't. Uh, And why would you want to be? Uh, But when it comes to Christian uh, orthodoxy, uh, there's a little bit of a uh, raging debate right now over what constitutes right-believing when it comes uh, to uh, the Christian faith. Who can call themselves Orthodox? I'm not talking about the Eastern Orthodox, I'm talking about the Orthodox as opposed to the Revisionists. And there's an argument uh, that has been circulating uh, for much of the 20th century that it's fidelity to the creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. If you can tick the box on all these things, then that means that you're an Orthodox Christian. I would challenge that, and I would challenge that because the creeds have no authority in and of themselves apart from what? The Word of God. So, actually, the articles say that we believe in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed, and we believe in the Creed of Athanasius, uh, which is also in the back of the prayer book, and you can read that sometime. Uh, And we agree with them. Why? Because they're agreeable to God's Word written. Right? They don't actually have any authority in and of themselves, but they derive their authority uh, from the Word of God. So orthodoxy is not, uh, and of course, because what they were dealing with in that day and age was was the nature of Jesus, they didn't get into a lot of other things that actually do, uh, that are brought up in the Word of God. So one of the things that, uh, that you would expect if the church ever came together, and I pray that it would one day, and decided to draft a new creed or a new confession, it would probably be dominated by whatever burning issue of the day is afoot. right? Because we've already said, we, agree, we know who Jesus is, there's the Nicene Creed, and then Protestants generally looking at the creeds and confessions that sync with one another at the time of the Reformation. Here's how you get saved, and here's what we believe about the sacraments. But they don't address a lot of other burning issues of the day. And I would imagine that there was somebody... At, when they were drafting the 39 articles or they, when they were at the Council of Nicaea for the Nicene Creed, and probably someone said, I mean, but gosh, doesn't the Bible have so much else to say other than who Jesus is? I mean, there are other burning issues. I mean, in North Africa, I got this issue in my, uh, in my diocese, and, and this is kind of a big deal, and it would be nice if we could address this. Uh, well, no, because it was the burning issue of the day. And the same in England. Somebody, I'm sure, said, gosh, if we have to talk about the Mass one more time, Uh, I'm going to explode. Uh, But that was what the burning issue of the day was. And so the church has always had to constantly confront and deal with the presenting issues of the day. And uh, that's what has happened with creeds and confessions and how they've manifested themselves. And so the articles for us today, as I draw this to a close, actually draw out for us a playing field of what it means to be an Anglican. Uh, here Here are the boundaries. And there's really, frankly, uh, nothing particularly controversial uh, about uh, the articles uh, except uh, using them as a basis of unity. Uh, but because um, I feel unity in, in Christ's body, especially amongst Anglicans, is so important uh, that we have to start somewhere. Uh, and, the angle, and the articles uh, are a great place to start uh, because they help us to understand our doctrine, our discipline, and our devotion Uh, as Anglican Christians, even in uh, the world today. Uh, Because as I said earlier, uh, the issues that the articles bring up, even the issues that the Nicene Creed brings up, are issues that are still issues today. And we should never uh, take for granted that, uh, of course, everybody knows who Jesus is. Or, of course, everybody has uh, an understanding of how they can get right uh, with God. uh, Because uh, it's pretty clear, based on the research, uh, that uh, not just the world... Uh, but Christians themselves, uh, there's a lot of confusion over, uh, over those types of issues. Okay, so I've thrown a couple bombs out there. I would love to hear uh, some comments and some responses and questions, if you have them. Where does the concept and when was the concept developed of orthodoxy? Yeah, so, I, well, Yes. I don't think it's up for a vote. So that was Dan Brown's big thing, and remember the Da Vinci series, uh, is that the church all got together and they voted. And that's really not really what happened, because that was the testimony of God's word. So it's funny to me, people who say things like, you know, remember a couple years ago, National Geographic did this big thing on the Gospel of Judas, remember that? And everyone was like, oh, this is just gonna absolutely rock the church. We haven't heard about it since then. Uh, But the funny thing is, is that, The gospel of Judas was not suppressed by the church. Uh, It wasn't believed by the church. Uh, You could hold it up to the Bible and say, this doesn't work. And so the early church was very aware of these gospel narratives, like the infant gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas uh, or the gospel of of Mary. They knew about them, uh, but they were incongruent uh, with uh, what they had been given as the authoritative testimony uh, of of the apostles, uh, and well, the apostles who, who were the authors of the, of the New Testament. So there was a general consensus, and you see that uniformity uh, in God's Word. So, but what I do like is that the Bible, as a correcting agent, because it gives some pretty vivid examples of where Christianity has gone wrong. So the first heresy in the church were the Judaizers. And you remember that uh, Paul and Peter had a falling out. Now, this is Peter. He's not a small character. You know, he's not a fringe character. He's not always confused. He's a leader of the church. In fact, you can go so far as to say he was the leader of the band of the original disciples, now apostles. And yet, uh, his teaching and his behavior concerning how he interacted with Gentiles and how he interacted with Jews... He was setting himself up against God's word. And so what did Paul do? He confronted him. And we find a record of that in Galatians, where Paul says, I spoke to Peter face-to-face uh, about this and told him that he was wrong. Uh, and he didn't appeal to anything but God's word. This is what God has said, and this is what uh, we're going to do. And so the church, uh, and the articles do this too, define orthodoxy as obedience to God's Word, submission to God's Word. And Mark Twain, great quote, uh, Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. And that's true for all of us. But I think that that's just it. We, we have to grapple with it. And I'm not saying, well, that's what the Bible says we have to do it. I mean, I think we have to really struggle with the hard things and the things that people want to ignore in the Bible, like how we treat Immigrants, how we treat the underprivileged, how we wage war, uh, not just the hot button issues uh, of the day. I mean, I think that we need to take seriously the whole counsel of God and not just get nitpicky. But again, there are presenting issues in our culture that have to be addressed and dealt with. And I don't, and I think also we need to realize too, like with Peter and Paul, we're dealing with people. And we live in a culture where you can cite chapter and verse. And they're just going to roll their eyes at you, right? They're not. And so I think that more than trying to enforce biblical orthodoxy, I think we need to preach the gospel and look for God to change hearts. Andrew, bring it around to us here at the Advent. Um, A few years ago, we implemented the program um, and it made some revisions to our liturgy. Talk to us about what, remind us again what those key changes were and why those were important about shaping the way we worship. Time's up. Just kidding. Uh, no, this is an easy one, and I, I'm very happy to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, so our liturgy now is, one, it's, it's a shape and it's a content that... See, Mary Bradley? Uh, that, um, that is congruent with the vast majority of Anglicans around the world. It also was a switch in realizing that certain things that we say and certain things that we do Uh, are sending the wrong message. And so rather than having our liturgy be confusing, uh, we want it to be as clear uh, as possible, which is really what Cranmer was trying to do. Incidentally, Cranmer would be shocked to know that we're using his liturgy still. He would think we're all idiots. Uh, He really would. And I mean, Ashley Knoll, Dermed McCulloch, all those guys would say Cranmer would be Bowl over. In fact, the articles say that. The articles say, look, yeah, you can change the liturgy, but you can't change the theology. So you have to figure out a culturally acceptable vehicle to move the gospel. And so here at the Advent, um, the culture, culturally acceptable vehicle is going to be different. So like things like with thy, and with thy spirit. Like that's, that's part of our identity and who we are and we wouldn't want to get away from it. But not just that, but the theological conviction that it's not just an also with you, we're actually speaking spirit to spirit, which is largely lost when you get into the also with you kind of talk. Right? Uh, But also things like going back uh, to the old morning prayer confession, uh, there's no health in us, uh, making uh, the communion service more succinct uh, so that there's a clear understanding and a focus on the cross. Uh, the longer communion prayer is incredibly convoluted. And this has been a big debate in the Episcopal Church since the 1780s. And, uh, and, but has been largely lost in the 20th century. The communion prayer from the 1979 prayer book in Rite 1, even Rite 2, contradicts itself on various points. So one of them is, um, and although we are unworthy to offer unto thee any sacrifice, but... But here we offer ourselves. And Cramer said, not would have said, said, no, 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 you offer yourself up after you've received communion, not before because you come to the table, how? With money? Gold? Any kind of gift? Ego? Whatever. No, you come empty-handed. And then after being fed with the spiritual food of His body and blood, then you say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. And so, the shape and the content is, is more clear uh, than it was before. And yet, it's not the Advent embarking and going off on its old thing. In fact, if anything, our changes actually made the Advent a more traditional church than before. Which I know is... But we get used to it. So, right now, the 79 Prayer Book is going to be revised. And they're, they're very clever... So the committee, one of the committees that's working on it has decided that they're going to propose, rather than wholesale revision, to just change certain parts of the prayer book. Which means that if we ran out of 1979 prayer books and we needed to order some new ones, it would be almost identical except for those bits that they've changed out. And so talk about a Trojan horse. And so they're talking about making that happen in, next year. So that would mean, uh, whether you agree with it or not, the marriage service becoming completely gender neutral. That's their proposal, is that they would just go ahead and do that. Uh, So, because we knew that was going to happen, that's another reason. Uh, Because the Advent really does need to be the Advent, and I think it's important that we stay true to who we are and go from strength to strength. right, it's going to get even more exciting because we're going to get into some fun issues like the Holy Spirit. Go and peace and love, and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.